You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters, because accounting matters. On today's episode, we brought back some awesome people from our capital markets practice. Jana Gregory is a senior manager from Charlotte, and Chase Anderson is a managing director from Phoenix. They flexed their knowledge during our IPO mini-series, and it just made sense to bring them back to unpack the SPAC. We are covering some of the changes the SEC has proposed in regards to SPACs, and we actually have covered SPACs in more detail in previous episodes. We hope you enjoy today's episode and learn something new, and don't roll your eyes too hard at my SPAC puns. Enjoy! This is Sarah Cade Richter, and I'm joined by my co-host Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. Also joining us today, we brought back Jana Gregory and Chase Anderson from our IPO mini-series. If you haven't gone and listened to those episodes, you definitely should, because these guys brought some awesome content. And today we have a spectacular episode lined up for you. That's right. We will be hitting on our most punnable topic, which is SPACs, or Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, and the recently proposed SEC rules that, if approved, will significantly impact the ways of the SPAC. We've got a lot of SPACs to unpack, so let's dive right in. To kick things off, Adam, I know we've talked about SPACs on some of our past episodes, particularly with all the investor buzz around the vehicle. What does the SPAC landscape look like today, and have things changed at all? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, if I think back to our prior discussions, it was was the hot uh, capital markets kind of buzzword that everyone was talking about. You know, we were in the middle of a pandemic, but there was this capital market savior out there, the SPAC, that everyone was all, you know, really interested in. Um, companies were, you know, looking into potential exit strategies through a SPAC, and everything seemed great. You know, as times kind of transpired over the past two years, we've seen some of the uh, success and failures of the SPAC market, frankly. Um, you know, some of that buzz is definitely tampered down a bit. Um, and, and obviously with these new rules that are proposed and the potential for new regulations around SPACs um, and some of the risks that have been brought forward um, as part of the proposed rules, um, you know, it's likely to have, you know, a, a bigger impact on whether or not the SPAC market continues to be this poster child for, for investors. So Chase, before we get into some of the big picture rules proposed by the SEC, can you shed some light um, on the SPAC trends or even how SPACs have been performing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so some SPAC metrics I found quite interesting to set the stage for this. Are the first SPAC was formed in 1993. I don't know how many people know that. Um, in 2021, there were approximately 600 SPAC IPOs with proceeds of about $160 billion. That's up from approximately 240 SPAC IPOs in 2020 with proceeds of about $85 billion. Uh, Q1 2021 saw the highest number of SPAC IPOs with approximately 300. And that compares to Q1 2022 that saw about uh, 65, still a sizable number compared to pre-COVID quarterly trends, which typically had less than 20 SPAC IPOs per quarter. Uh, the downward trend in quarterly SPAC IPOs for 2022 is expected. Uh, to, uh, to continue. And I don't know if anybody saw it today, but the stock market has taken uh, quite the dive. So it's uh, probably going to be low for some yeah. time. Um, the general trends in SPACs heading into Q2 that we're seeing are highly competitive market for a larger number of SPACs trying to find a target, lackluster de-SPAC share performance, 
actual financial performance coming in lower, sometimes uh, significantly lower than the financial projections used in the merger proxy. A lot lower pipe financing because of lower equity values, higher SPAC redemption rates, increased use of earnouts, often tied to stock performance. And as we're going to talk about today, increased SEC scrutiny and time for merger signing to de-SPAC that's extended from what was about three months to five months plus. I was going to make a really stupid joke that I was also formed in 1993, just like <laughs> SPAC. <laughs> uh, but thanks for shedding some light there, Chase. I know SPACs are kind of starting to cool in popularity. And with the newly proposed SEC rules, it seems like they might continue that trend uh, while the investor public works through their investment strategies. So for those that maybe haven't followed the SPAC boom, why were SPACs a hot investment ticket for capital raising strategy? Uh, to begin with, Adam. Yeah, it, and this kind of ties back to our, our prior discussion. I think we had a, a back at the high level of SPACs, we had an episode really building them up, talking about how great they were at the time. Not to say that they aren't still a great vehicle, but obviously there's just uh, probably a little more reasonableness around what you need to be looking out for. But initially, you know, the thought was that SPACs were just a, a quicker way to get a pump a company to the you know access to public capital. Um, you know. IPOs themselves are, are known to be kind of a long process. They can be quite costly. And so SPACs were often viewed as like, you know, a, a more condensed kind of ramp up to get access to the capital markets, you know, a little bit lower cost, um, less risk if you think about volatility with kind of like your IPO pricing, because SPAC pricing is usually preset as part of the deal. So you have less, you know, risk in the volatility of what the markets may be doing. So those were some of like the big reasons that we saw a lot of investors originally excited about forming SPACs and then private companies, you know, really excited about pairing up with a, a SPAC sponsor to take them to the public um, markets. So SPACs were the solution to some of these hurdles? Yeah, I'll take that. And, and that's right. Yeah, SPACs were perceived as an alternative way to jumpstart a company's growth with additional capital and oftentimes a lot of additional capital. Uh, and they got the benefit of an experienced sponsor team by becoming a public company through a reverse merger. Uh, this back route was perceived as a way to take the company public faster, cheaper, and without some of the downsides of the traditional IPOs that Adam just mentioned. And additionally, unlike uh, traditional IPO, SPAC mergers were allowed to present future projections in their filings. And that's something I think, Janet, you're probably going to talk about here in a little bit, but that was a huge plus for some of these companies. Uh, valuation companies and, and investors viewed IPOs as being based on historical valuations versus SPAC mergers kind of being based versus on future projection uh, metrics. But in short order, everyone was on the SC, on the SPAC bandwagon. I think Adam, did you start a SPAC? Jana, did you start a SPAC? No? <laughs> okay. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they, were, they were popular for a, a variety of reasons. And SPACs, founders, sponsors, celebrities, investment bankers, private equity firms, lawyers, consultants, auditors, institutional investors. It's a long list. Um, but they were all set to make a tremendous amount of money with these SPACs. The economics of these deals were well understood by the SPACs and the professional investing community, but not so well by the regular retail investor, you know, the use of the knees and the later being who the SEC tries to protect the most. So is it fair to say that maybe the SPAC boom or resurgence was an example of if it seems too good to be true, maybe it is? I think you'd find quite a few people who believe that sentiment. Um, in fact, in the late in late 2020, a group of academics from NYU, Yale, and Stanford wrote a paper paper titled "A Sober Look at SPACs." And I love the name because it just reminds me of the Great Gatsby, where I was everyone was being drunk on the good times, which is what it really felt <laughs> like at the at the height of this. 
Um, and this paper went into considerable detail regarding the economic, the general economics of performance of SPACs. And because it is an academic paper, it pushes 100 pages. I expect a lot of people didn't spend the time to read it. Um, however, for the listeners, I highly recommend anyone interested in SPACs to give it a read. And what the research found, which has been updated with the latest SPAC trends, has been, been updated, was extremely informative in breaking down the life cycle of a SPAC from formation to DSPAC, conflicts of interest, a lack of transparency, financial trends in the post DSPAC performance. And the paper found general trends in the SPAC vehicles, many of which contradicted the general talking points people heard about SPACs lower cost to go in public, strong returns, et cetera. Uh, and what's interesting about that paper, the sort of look at SPACs, is that it's one of the first and most often referenced uh, uh, articles or pieces of uh, citations in the new SEC proposed rules. And needless to say, this paper got the attention of the SEC in the light it shed on the economics of the transactions that were more likely than not pretty confusing to an ordinary investor. And in the time during the SPAC frenzy, we're sure to raise some eyebrows at the SEC and rumors began to spread that action was going to be taken by the SEC. Comment letters were the start, followed by the staff statement on accounting and reporting considerations for warrants. And that resulted in an avalanche of our statements, ultimately followed by the SEC proposed rules that will effectively change the SEC, the, the SPAC merger process to more closely mirror the traditional IPO process that, uh, that I was talking about. Thanks, Chase. So... We've kind of done our history lesson. We're, we're here at present day. We understand where we've come with SPACs. So Adam, what is the SEC actually proposing? How are they going to change the rules? Yeah, so it's similar really to a lot of the recent rule or proposed rulemaking, I should say, that the SEC has kind of come forth with. If we think about you know ESG, cybersecurity, and now with, with the SPACs um, proposed rules, and it, it really centers around just more increased disclosure and, you know, a focus more on investor protection, giving them the, you know, the relevant information in a succinct and, and, and complete way for them to make good decisions about um, their investments. And so if we peel back a little bit into some of just the introduction of the proposal, you know, we spent quite a bit of time, the three of us um, kind of combing through this proposed rule or rules, I should say, um, you know, a couple you know, phrases kind of stand out from the proposed rule that I just want to kind of hit that really, I think, sets the theme of what we'll talk about in more detail today. Um, but, you know, just to quote some of the, the language in the proposed rule, you know, there's a real focus on greater transparency and more robust investor protections could assist investors in evaluating and making investment voting and redemption decisions. Um, also, the proposed rules and amendments, if adopted, could help the SPAC market function more efficiently by improving the relevance, completeness, clarity, and comparability of the disclosures provided by SPACs at the initial public offering and at the DSPAC transaction stages, and by providing important investor protections to help strengthen investor confidence. So again, it's about giving more information and ensuring that investors that are really subject to you know, what's going on behind the curtains with SPACs, they, get, they, they have that information so they can make the right decisions for themselves and feel empowered to do so. Got it. I'll bring Jana into the conversation. I've been leaving you out. Jana, how are investors and SPACs responding to the proposed rules? I'd imagine there's some mixed feelings there. Yeah, certainly. So later on, we'll actually dive a bit a bit deeper into some of the public comments that have already been submitted to the SEC. But generally speaking, it appears the sentiment from investors, especially retail investors, is that the SEC is overstepping its bounds and potentially stopping the flow of SPAC deals and therefore hurting investors rather than protecting them. And investor protection is the theme, like Adam said, of all of these proposed rules. So um, 
Many retail investors see SPAC investments as one of those rare opportunities to actually invest at the same terms as large institutional investors. Um, and these proposed rules do have the possibility of significantly limiting those opportunities by killing, potentially killing SPAC deals altogether. Interesting. Well, maybe we can get into the nitty gritty of the proposed rules. So, Jana, can you start us off with some of that? Absolutely. So there's several key areas in the proposed rules. We're going to touch on a lot of those today. Um, the first of which, which we've mentioned several times, of course, is around enhanced disclosures for the purpose of investor protection. Um, one of the primary ways that the SEC is seeking to address this is through proposed sponsor disclosures. So SPAC sponsor disclosures that are meant to provide investors with a more complete understanding of who the SPAC sponsors are, the roles of the SPAC sponsors, their incentives, and so on. So some of those required sponsor disclosures that are mentioned in the proposed rules would be disclosure of the experience, roles, and responsibilities of the sponsor, so more of their credentials and background information, um, any arrangements between the sponsor and the SPAC in determining whether to proceed with a DSPAC transaction, the nature and amount of compensation awarded to the sponsor, and that would include any reimbursements that would be paid upon the completion of a DSPAC transaction. So on that last point, I know the SEC provided a sort of warning in the past around investors understanding the risk of dilution from compensation arrangements with SPAC sponsors. Can you explain typically how are they compensated in these transactions? Oh, yeah. So sure. SPAC sponsors are generally compensated with around 25% of the SPAC IPO proceeds, which are typically going to be paid out upon the successful completion of that DSPAC transaction, because that is the ultimate goal of setting up a SPAC is to have a successful DSPAC transaction. Um, in the SEC's proposal, the staff noted concerns raised that because sponsor compensation is dependent on the completion of that DSPAC transaction, there could be these potential conflicts of interest that could lead sponsors to enter into potentially unfavorable DSPAC transactions without performing robust due diligence. That's a cause for concern that the SEC has raised. Um, so because of this, the staff is also proposing required disclosures of any actual or potential conflicts of interest. And then to even further address concerns regarding conflicts of interest and any misaligned incentives, the SEC is proposing that SPACs be required to make a statement as to the fairness of the DSPAC transaction. So probably listeners might hear these referred to as fairness disclosures. Um, specifically, the statement would be whether the SPAC reasonably believes that the DSPAC transaction and any related financings are fair or or sorry, fair or unfair to the SPAC's unaffiliated security holders. And they would also be required to prepare a basis to support that statement. So not just simply stating, yes, this transaction is fair, but also providing a supportable basis to show how that conclusion was reached. And one of those factors could be through obtaining a third-party fairness opinion. It's going to be like social media fact-checkers here pretty soon. <laughs> but uh, no, the conflicts of interest, that's an area that I've seen. And as an example, I came across where pre-existing investors who are also board members of an operating company, the Target, uh, they form their own SPAC and use the SPAC vehicle to then immediately merge with the operating company that they were invested in. And so it'll be interesting to see how, you know, scenarios like this play out the proposed rules uh, if they're adopted. Absolutely. And another important area in the proposal, which Sarah, I think you actually mentioned in one of your questions is around 
um, dilution and require disclosures of dilution. So that's another area of concern for the SEC. They're concerned about all the potential sources of dilution in a SPAC structure. So that means the costs that dilute the investment for this for the shareholders, and especially dilutes the costs for shareholders um, that do not choose to redeem their shares and therefore remain invested in that post-combination merged entity. Um, some of those dilutive costs are things like massive underwriting fees, shareholder redemptions, sponsor compensation, which we've talked about, um, outstanding warrants, convertible securities, pipe financing. So all of the above that really could dilute in a shareholder's investment. So in light of this, the SEC is proposing additional disclosures that would require a description of material sources of further dilution following the SPAC's IPO, um, as well as a tabular disclosure of future dilution from the IPO price that would be absorbed by non-redeeming SPAC shareholders. And that's to the extent that it's quantifiable. I mean, we're not gonna know all of this on day one, but if it's available and possible for disclosure, um, the SEC wants that disclosed so that shareholders can make an informed decision. Okay, so hearing all of that, I gotta ask, Chase, is a SPAC truly a more cost-effective or cheaper way to access capital then? It, it depends, uh, but it's important to note that dilution happens along the DSPAC life cycle, and it's a ex very expensive hidden cost uh, that is often very overlooked when people say that going SPAC is, is cheaper uh, to go into the IPO. And that's overlooked at uh, SPAC's paper. does a great job actually showing the, the, the math behind how just dilutive um, each of the different phases that Jane's been talking about can, can happen along the, along the way. Awesome. Well, Jana gave us a ton to unpack there. So Adam, beyond sponsor disclosures, conflicts of interest, fairness statements, and dilution disclosures, what are some other highlights of the SEC's proposal? Yeah, there's uh, there's quite a few. And we'll, and we'll touch on some of these. Obviously, we're not going to be able to get the entire rule into this conversation today. So I will um, kind of qualify if, if you are you know, seeking a SPAC opportunity, you know, definitely take a look at the rule in more detail. But uh, just a few here to touch on. So one is that um, non-financial information about the target company. So the private company looking to merge with um, the SPAC. You know, the current rules basically have a, what I would say is a pretty accelerated deadline. So it's four day business days after the completion of the DSPAC is when um, you'll have to file what is known as this Super 8K um, form, which a lot of people view that as being, you know, a pretty aggressive timeline and a lot of legwork has to go in advance to having that ready. Um, but the proposed rule would actually accelerate that even more. Um, and the goal behind this change in the rule is really just allow shareholders to get this information sooner so they can really understand the operating company before they decide whether to vote in favor of the DSPAC or maybe just redeem their interest in the, in the SPAC sponsor vehicle. Um, another area is that the SEC is proposing that both the SPAC and the target company, so in this case, the private company again, they're both treated as co-registrants on the registration statement, so Form S4. Um, one thing to note here is this change essentially makes the private operating company um, liable for any material misstatements or omissions similar to the public entity SPAC. And again, here, the, the goal is really just to hold people accountable for the information they're putting out there for investors. Um, and so they really have to kind of stand behind what they're doing. And there, there can be punitive consequences for inaccurate or materially misleading disclosures. Um, another change to the rules is kind of around um, filer status. So 
This particularly relates to smaller reporting companies and whether or not you uh, maintain that status following the consummation of the DSPAC transaction. So currently most SPACs, you know, just based on their nature, qualify as smaller reporting companies, and they're usually able to retain this status until they're, you know, required to essentially reevaluate that status at the next annual determination date. Um, the proposed rule here is basically asking that post DSPAC, so post business combination, um, the combined company basically has to redetermine whether or not it still qualifies for that smaller reporting company status in their next periodic filing. So that could be as soon as their next quarterly filing. So they don't get that grace period to kind of extend it to the next annual determination date. Yeah, so one more change is really around the, the definition of a blank check company and whether or not SPACs can kind of qualify under the safe harbor provisions of blank check companies. And so the proposed rule is basically saying that this safe harbor protection that is afforded to blank check companies um, is not necessarily going to be made available to kind of the forward looking. So that prospective projection information that stack, SPACs tend to include um, in their filings. So in other words, they really got to put a lot of focus on that forward-looking statement, financial information, um, because they will be subject to liability if there's any kind of uh, material misstatements or misleading information included in there. And then kind of the last big change is this is more, more so on kind of other parties to the SPAC transaction. So for underwriters, you know, obviously underwriters as part of the SPAC IPO. Um, you know, they're, they're essentially going to have to do all their required due diligence and, you know, all the... Uh, the exercise of care that needs to go into the IPO side. Um, the proposed rule is also basically stating that underwriters are going to be expected to um, abide by that, um, you know, the accuracy of information and the exercise of due care that they need to provide as part of the DSPAC transaction. So really on both sides of the transaction, the underwriters um, are going to have some liability there as well. All right. I give Adam a second to catch his breath while I ask him another oh. question. <laughs> Do any of the proposed rules change any financial statement requirements in a SPAC transaction? Yeah, they do. So this is probably one thing to definitely uh, kind of keep in mind here if you're in the midst of exploring a SPAC or it's something that you were, you were contemplating. So part of the proposed rule does include changes to business combinations with shell companies, so SPACs, like we've talked about. Um, and one of the, the more significant changes is that basically aligning the financial statement requirements of private operating companies um, with those of, you know, that are required in a traditional IPO. So what this means, in other words, is you essentially would be required in, in many cases to include three years of income statements, changes in stockholders' equity and cash flows. Um, obviously, there are some exceptions to that rule where only two years may be permitted under specific scenarios. So those still exist. But absent those specific scenarios, um, it's going to be some additional uh, financial statement requirements by including three years for, or three period, three annual periods. Uh, one thing to note is that under the current rules, there was actually some kind of kind of a weird situation here. If you could qualify for two annual periods to be presented, whether or not um, you could present two or you might be required to present three. And it was really dependent on whether or not the SPAC sponsor itself had a, filed its first annual report or not. Just kind of a nuance in the existing rules. Um, the proposed rule would actually remove some of that confusion. So that that would be kind of one area where maybe things get clarified a bit more. And the SEC is also proposing a new rule for businesses acquired by the target 
operating company, the private company. So just for example, and I think this is actually an example laid out in the proposal where you have shell company A, so the SPAC, and target opco B, and they're they're merging in a DSPAC transaction. And that target operating company acquired a different company, company C, before the actual form S4 was filed. Um, so the new rule applies to the reporting requirements for that company C. Um, and the proposed rule essentially requires application of Rule 305 to these types of scenarios. So as a reminder, Rule 305 is the Reg SX SEC provision related to financial statements of an acquired business. This um, particular change isn't exactly groundbreaking because it's expected to be consistent with current market practice of applying Rule 305 to acquisitions by the target operating company, but it would be um, officially codified, so to speak. And what about financial projections? I know these were a large part of many SPACs and IPOs, you know, that forward-looking information that's super useful for investors. So Chase, are the rules trying to tighten up anything with respect to these? Yeah, and that's exactly right. And that's some of what Adam and Janet covered. And, and there are suggested enhancements to disclosures in this space. Uh, the SEC noted concerns raised regarding the use of projections in DSPAC transactions that may lack a reasonable basis. Uh, so the staff are proposing amendments to expand and update the SEC's view on the use of projections and mandate additional disclosure uh, requirements uh, to, quote, enhance the attention and level of care companies bring to the preparation of financial projections. Uh, and the, the proposed changes are aimed at assisting registrants in presenting their projections in appropriate format and with the appropriate context in order to facilitate investor evaluation of the projections and assessment of the reasonableness of the basis for the projections. Uh, ultimately, the SEC's goal here is to help investors know when and how much to rely upon projections. And auditors love projections, so um, it's been a huge focus for the past well, handful of years uh, in audits as well. So it's, it's rightfully so to fit here as well. Awesome. Well, we just covered a ton of changes that might be coming through this, and I can imagine the SEC will be receiving a lot of comments on these proposed changes. So, Jana, can you remind our listeners, what's the timing for the comment period on the proposal? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess just to set the stage first, the SEC posed nearly 150 specific requests for comment in the proposal. I know that's not as much as some of the other recent proposals, but it's still quite a bit. <laughs> um, in the yeah, you got 800 period. in the ESG one, I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so 150 here, but still a lot to consider. Um, and the SEC will, so that, that comment period is open and the SEC will be accepting comments until 30 days after this proposed rule is officially published in the Federal Register. Check today, and as of this podcast recording date in early May, it's still not published to the Federal Register. So this comment period is going to extend beyond May 31st. So we're looking probably sometime into June. And what has the common activity been like so far? Um, are there any themes or responses that you could highlight for us? Sure. So there actually have been a handful of public comments already submitted. Not, not as many as I expected, but there have been a handful. So we've been able to review those. Um, most are from individual retail investors. Several, several of these early commenters expressed concern about the SEC seeming to constantly create this environment of regulatory uncertainty and unpredictability, and it's actually damaging their investor portfolios rather than hurting them, like, like we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Um, so one commenter feels that the SEC is taking a condescending view of retail investors and even said it's it's not, you know, th their ability to comprehend documents, projections, and risks, it's they feel the SEC is being condescending about their ability to do that. And that commenter went on to say that, you know, we all invest knowing there are risks for doing so. And we know that projections are estimates, not promises. 
Um, another individual investor's opinion is that, you know, some retail investors may not may not conduct adequate due diligence, but the information that's currently disclosed is sufficient for those that do. Um, and this commenter doubts that any of these proposed changes would actually cause those investors that don't currently perform due diligence to do even more. Um, and the commenter said that the SPACs already provide ample disclosures and information for investors to make an informed decision. Sounds pretty spicy. I think those guys need to head over to Reddit, leave their comments over there. Exactly. A lot of passion. <laughs> Anything you saw, Chase? Yeah, another, another interesting commenter I saw was an attorney. Um, this particular respondent was in favor of the proposed enhanced disclosures that are focused on the SPAC sponsors, uh, like credential, SPAC, uh, sponsor compensation, and conflicts of interest. And the commenter also supports target companies becoming co-registrants on the initial registration statement. But this commenter specifically objects to the fairness proposals and underwriter proposals. Then to quote, requiring companies to spend substantial sums for fairness opinions in the SPAC context seems contrary to the SEC's concern about dilution, into which bucket the staff lumps compensation and underwriting expenses. The underwriter proposal certainly cannot be squared with the statement that the SEC is simply trying to level the playing field with traditional IPOs, which face no such requirements. Uh, and they go on to express concerns and speculations that the underwriter proposals are vague enough that, quote, others beyond actual underwriters could be swept up by the rule and suffer wholly unexpected liabilities, including attorneys, accountants, let's hope not, uh, financial advisors, and even <laughs> investors. Wow. It'll be interesting to see what comes from the comments and what impact that has um, on the final rule with the SEC. We may even have to do another episode when that comes out. Oh, I just can't um, wait to read Adams. I wonder what he's going to write. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's accounting God 101. He has his yeah. username. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you guys for joining us, keeping us up to date on everything happening in the accounting world. And thank you to all of our listeners for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.